Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. Frank Pelican. Uh, you were listening to episode 103, and we are covering the top five story of the day movies, uh, which is going to be my concession to Frank when I rename the episode, <laughs> um, the top five movies that take place in a single day when I put this up um, uh, for uh, download. Um, <clears throat> it's all, it's about the downloads, Frank. Uh, I'm giving you your title um, online. Uh, so the concept here, um, which I think from the second title is as clear as all these movies are going to take place in a single day. Although through my research, I've realized that uh, we have talked about a number of movies, Frank, that take place uh, during a single day through the natural course of the podcast, including Before Sunrise, Before Sunset. Uh, we haven't talked about the night, the original Night of the Living Dead yet, have we? It's just the 91, I think. Yeah, it's never made a list. Originally. Yeah. Arsenic and Old Lace, we talked about Groundhog Day and the best of Bill Murray. Um, third Man episode, we covered the Goonies in a first, in a first watch. Uh, then Magnolia, Lahane, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Do the Right Thing, Cleo from 5 to 7, and First Blood, which I'm still not sure about, um, even though it shows up on people's lists. I, I, don't, I can't remember if that takes place in one day or two. But, um, but I do want to bring up a, a few more. Um, possibilities here just kind of get your general take on some of these movies uh so uh first we talked about this very briefly um not too long ago a couple a couple weeks ago but what about training day i like training day i just don't think it's as good as any of these movies right. uh falling down uh i don't know if i remember falling down enough to have an opinion on it mm-hmm. i remember thinking it was kind of a goofy movie in the 90s when i saw it so yeah yeah i would like i would love maybe do maybe someday to do like a second watch of that or something because i have not seen it since i was a teenager so like since the 90s at some point and i have a feeling i would really dislike the politics of it potentially um now in terms of because it's like taxi driver i guess right except for it's like a middle class white pencil like you know like a, a pocket pocket protector type of guy um that loses it i guess um yeah uh taking a pelham one two three the original I like that a lot. yeah it's a good movie um that's a comedy but ferris bueller's day off ferris bueller's is a really good movie i actually we're putting ferris on this list but again yeah uh bad day at black rock hmm I didn't. I guess that doesn't make sense that that takes place in a single day. That, that's a really good movie. Yeah. I just. Uh, watched it. A few years ago, I guess. Yeah. I had it on your Criterion watch list because it was disappearing soon, and then I forgot to watch it. So, because I was going to rewatch that. Uh, Touch of Evil. Yeah, I never think of Touch of Evil taking place. I don't there. either. Yeah, I was pretty surprised when I saw. It's a pretty great movie. Yeah. So. And then Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, 12 Angry Men is also another great movie. You also, you forgot a couple, I think, that we've okay. talked about on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, Dazed and Confused is the course of one day. Um, oh, right. Obviously, I love that movie. Right. Um, did you mention Groundhog Day? Yeah, I did. Uh-huh. Okay. You went through them so fast, I don't know. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I forgot Dazed and You're right. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a reason for that. Um right. <laughs> That's a movie I definitely would have included on this list had we not have already discussed it. So. Mm. I guess be thankful that it's Magnolia. already. Been- you probably would have included Magnolia, I would think, too, right? Yeah, 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 hundred yeah. percent. Um, and Magnolia probably, probably, probably one of the one. Yeah, 
and probably one of the before movies i would think too if we hadn't already like talked about those yeah probably probably before probably before sunrise would have been the one that i would have i don't know i like them both so much mm-hmm. yeah and then do the right thing probably would have yeah yeah that's true that's another one yeah. although i don't know because some of the movies on this list are like some of my personal favorite movies of all time so all right. kind of hard sure um were there any more that you had thought of um that you consider putting on the list because you came up with this one pretty quickly i remember i don't remember what movie it was where i was like yeah that's what i want to talk about i actually think it might have been the movie you hate the most on this list like i was just thinking about it one day and i was like you know that, that, that all takes place in the span of like eight hours yeah like generally so i think i think this came up because uh, I think it came up because of your number one movie. Because remember we talked about this like a number of times and how this never like always feels like it could make a list and never makes a list. Yeah, that that uh, is possible. Yeah, I can't I can't remember like the origin of this, but um, I feel like I've had story of a day in my phone. It seems for like six months or something now. Um, I, hmm. I think it's been longer than that. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think it was right after Frankie came home from um from college jeez. so it might be close to a year that it's been on there <laughs> right um it's like the americana list um it's been on there for like i swear for it's gonna be it's like a year and a half now um it's been like saved <clears throat> top five americana movies it's a good list um by the time we get to it um you'll probably do all of those <laughs> movies on a different list so. all right uh haven't we done americana did we? Did we? Didn't we? We didn't. No. I don't think we did that. Wasn't that the list that American Graffiti was on? And oh yeah, it Stardust was. Memories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you started right. Or ra- Radio Days. Radio Days. <laughs> Not Stardust. <laughs> right, which you made me watch. Um, like, where you realized it was the wrong movie, and I was right. like, "It's like this. Is, I actually like this movie, Frank, but <laughs> this doesn't. This doesn't feel like Americana necessarily." Um. That's a little bit. I thought you were going to go like the radio angle, like with it, um, uh, like the television, like angle and stuff. It was in a little bit of it, but it's like okay, that's weird. All right. Um, <coughs> anything else you want to talk about? Because I mean, this is a pretty self-explanatory list, I think. And... No, I'm just um, excited to get into it. Okay, so number five on your list is La Comar Seca from 1962. is directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. It stars Francisco Ruio, uh, Giancarlo De Rosa, Vincenzo Sicori, and Alfredo Leggi. Uh, it has an 86% from critics and a 67% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you have it on this list? Um, so another really important thing about this movie is it was written by uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, um, or partially written by him, but inspired by a short story that he wrote. Um, Bertolucci's debut, Bertolucci, who would be going to become one of the more influential directors of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, it's done Rashomon style, so basically involves the police interviewing a number of men. Um, who were seen in and around a park during what they presume was the time that a prostitute was murdered. Um, 
so it basically involves each of the men sort of telling their story from a very um very personally subjective standpoint and then you seeing like the truth of what happened during their day um so one guy is a petty thief who's going around with his friends um robbing young lovers in the park basically um who gets beaten up and like kind of like tossed aside by a like a tough guy uh who's there with his girl and um is basically like wandering through the park at night when the murder occurs and then there's a young i don't know what you'd call him a soldier like who's on leave from war um or leave from the army who's wandering through the park trying to pick up women who gets questioned there's a guy who's uh sort of a pimp for uh madam um who's his girlfriend who's also um having an affair with another woman um there's a group of three young men um who have basically spent the day sort of like spending time with and carousing with their girlfriends and then finally um kind of a creepy weirdo guy wearing clogs um so each story is punctuated by a thunderstorm at which point bertolucci cuts back to showing the prostitute on her last night alive like basically getting dressed to go out and solicit a john um and then through the course of the narrative of the movie you kind of get like these different perspectives and see (coughs) pardon me goodness um see each of them sort of seeing like from different angles um the woman as she was standing there and then they kind of see each other um from those different perspectives as well um until you finally find out that it was the the creepy dude with the clogs um who ended up murdering the prostitute and he gets caught in the end um so i want to ask you a question mm-hmm. i i put this movie on this list because i think that number one bertolucci is a really important director sure um pasolini also very important italian director of the the mid 20th century now, um, pasolini is just so i recognize the name more when you said it than when i read it um but that's the uh solo guy right is that right Yep. Okay. Um, probably his most, I guess, famous work or infamous, depending right. on how you want to look at it. Uh-huh. Um, a guy who was one of the one of really like the first. Mm, maybe I can't say that he was a director who was openly gay very early in a time where being openly gay wasn't something that was necessarily thought of like in a positive light mm-hmm. even in like the artistic community so there was still a lot of like you know people that were in the closet that were gay and in, in filmmaking in hollywood and internationally and pasolini was like very vocally openly gay um i think it's an interesting look at so pasolini was sympathetic towards the police in italy and felt that basically the italian culture was being destroyed by consumerism um which is a lot of what salo reflects like in some of their um some of the more disgusting scenes but um it's an interesting look at these people who are all basically aside from like the three boys they're all basically disenfranchised in some way um and two of them openly criminals 
um, along with like a series of other prostitutes, you know, that are involved like in and out of these people's lives. Um, and I just think I find it a really interesting look like during a time where, um, you know, Italy's recovering from basically like being destroyed in the war still, even at this point in 1962, um, as evidenced by, you know, like they go through areas that are very clearly still bombed out and destroyed. And, you know, you, you can kind of see the evolution from like bicycle thieves where the the cities are being rebuilt but there still is some destruction there and i think there's a lot of just natural like talent in the way that bertolucci directs it in this way that he sets up scenes the way he moves his camera um we talked about off air we talked about a season of the witch the george romero um film Mm -hmm. that you really enjoyed and one of my complaints about it was it felt like you know like every camera movement felt very obvious it felt like here's like film school graduates like whatever like first project and i don't i don't get that same feeling from bertolucci bertolucci feels very self-assured behind the camera and he frames his shots well and right when he sh- so what, real quick because i was um I, I i threw you off track by asking about um solo uh what, what's the question that's underlying all this that you had for oh me? right when what don't you like about it <laughs> i guess okay. that's my question <laughs> um okay that's what i assumed like kind of like generally the question was based on like what you were saying um i i didn't know he was 21 when he directed this until you told me last night um so that doesn't change necessarily what i think about it but i definitely appreciate that a lot more um i maybe it's because i've seen so much film after him that maybe i don't see how distinct his style is potentially because maybe so many people have like mimicked things from him but I didn't find it necessarily I think one is I don't if it didn't feel like purposeful camera movement to me a lot of times it felt like it was um kind of like just errant at times like the camera movement um and maybe i'm not smart enough to see why that was happening um but it it didn't feel always purposeful to me but again now that i know that he's 21 i can forgive some of that stuff a lot more maybe uh i didn't find the framing of the scenes not all of them i mean there there's some stuff here that to me that really showed talent and i said that like i didn't hate this movie necessarily like i and i and i didn't I saw where this was somebody who was going to be a great director. Like you can see it early on. I just didn't find the filmmaking that captivating in this. I didn't really think it was particularly framed well. A lot of the times um, for what ostensibly in a lot of scenes is two medium shot talking characters to each other. Um, I, I felt that it was just, it's like you can distinguish in forties filmmaking, like, in kind of like those old noirs and stuff like that you can tell the good directors from the bad directors and and it's very easy to tell during that time period to me and when the camera is just kind of static a lot of times on two medium like on a medium shot of two characters um like that's usually when i know it's not going to be a very captivating movie necessarily um i'm not saying that he always does that but he does it often enough that it i think drags the energy of the movie down 
And it's almost like he might be trying to capture that with movement, like recapture energy with movement at times. But I don't necessarily understand some of his movement uh, occasionally. And I, so it just felt like this really kind of almost frustrating experience for me in watching it because it's like he's trying all these things, but they're not blending for me. And it's actually distracting me from the story that's being told, which is this kind of interesting, like you said, like, you know, different perspectives, you know, and certainly like a a lot of interesting stuff, I think, from a sociological standpoint about the time period and the place. Um, And and I really thought the filmmaking distracted from the movie at times, um, as opposed to integrated with it nicely, where... I know later, and honestly, I would make the same. What's what's that movie that we watched? Um, the Conformist. No, it was one of his later movies, right, Bertolucci, that we watched, and it was like four different segments, and what's his name was being a creep and like walking around and writing story short stories. That was Bertolucci. That was Antonioni. Oh, it was Antonioni. Okay, um, maybe it's that's the only top. reason why it made the list because it was Antonioni. <laughs> Right. I don't care. I don't, I don't care that much about Bertolucci, although I do like him a lot. Bertolucci. Okay. Bertolucci is a uh, last emperor, right? Yeah. Okay. That's a guy who's like mastered like his craft at that point to me, like where this just still feels like a lot of mistakes from a young filmmaker um, who's trying different stuff. And I don't know if it's always landing. And so like, I don't know. That's the best way I'm going to describe it. It was a frustrating. Ex- you loved conformist though. Yes, yeah. I did. And how many how many years after that is this like? Conformist is seventy, so eight years. Okay, yeah. And I thought it was beautiful. I mean, maybe the other thing too is there's a difference between uh, one of the things that I really like about the conformance is uh, the the coloring and um, the shadows and stuff like that that he does. So like maybe it's just a difference in um, filming and color, possibly, and eight years experience. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's just gaining confidence and yeah, you know skill it in terms of like knowing how to drive i i i i don't mind the two characters talking because i think to him that's the central conceit of the movie is that you know the 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 bleach blonde guy who's the pimp mm-hmm. basically is you know oh i'm you know i know i've been in trouble in the past but i i have a good woman now like i've settled down and then you see how he's like doesn't have a good woman because she's a vicious like madam and also has not settled down because he's you know like doing all these terrible things and i Mm -hmm. just think that's an important part of to bertolucci i think that the the mystery is less who killed the prostitute and more how do these people portray themselves to the public and how do they see themselves Mm -hmm. um i don't know I, i i really enjoy this movie i think that it's um it was a it was a hidden gem for me that i discovered um just randomly buying criterions one weekend um because i own this on dvd as well like the, the criterion of it so gotcha yeah yeah i mean you know i mean i'll i'll be a, a lot blunter like you know when we're off air about things i mean but i mean even last night i said i i, I don't think this is a bad movie it just wasn't something that like i liked for myself understand like, that. necessarily a lot i mean like I, I still think there's a lot of merit to this movie um and for people that really like film it's worth watching i mean but <clears throat> um i would never recommend this to just like a random person because i think what like kind of like a random person that just like watches movies here and there it's like i 
it's like this is how you end up like people like recommending these movies like to those people and that's how you get those boring comments um on right. ron tomatoes you know i mean yeah, I, I don't know that i ever would have recommended this movie to anyone yeah and honestly had we not have talked about some other really great movies that would have made this list it probably would never have made the list but but um, I, I happened to I happened to watch a couple scenes from it one night just randomly because mm-hmm. I was thinking about it, and um, actually I think it was we we had we had talked about something else that's from around the same time period in an Italian movie, um, and it just popped into my mind, and so I, you know, wanted to put it on the list. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I I I, I really, um, I mean, I like watching it just to see, like, you know how these people change and grow and i found it interesting from that regard it's just that i just yeah didn't care yeah. For as much but. it's 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 a relic of the career of a great filmmaker basically yeah yeah um yeah i guess we don't need to i probably yeah but that was like the main complaint was like on rotten tomatoes from like audience and stuff like that was um you know because i actually couldn't find any uh like true like criticism like so it was mostly just looking at audiences most of them were either it was like this is boring you know which i discounted so the the more fair things were kind of that um and here's a guy here's somebody over on tomatoes just so you know caught that's right because their name is christopher s (laughs) um and it's not me um but they said something very they said that they thought that the movie lacked uh energy um overall and um ended up by saying that more interesting than it is good which i thought was funny because it's christopher s and it was exactly kind of like how i thought about it but <clears throat> um but yeah so but i mean uh this is heralded like it seems to me by critics as um you know one of the greatest like directorial debuts like um, right well it also so at this point, let me think. You you would have Melville was making movies then, and Fellini was making movies. Bergman. So you've got some really like great directors, and the French New Wave hadn't really become a style yet. So you have this guy. I know the Bertolucci's Italian, but you have this guy that's kind of directing in that same, almost like cinema verite way that New Wave is directed mm-hmm. a lot of times, and he's doing it five years before it becomes like this phenomenon almost so i think that just in terms of like his very raw like realistic portrayal of people in scenes of life and i think there's some really beautiful camera work and the stuff where the um the first vignette where the criminals like kind of tracking the criminals are kind of tracking the couples through the woods Mm -hmm. like i love the way that's filmed and i i think that there's some really um some kind of like childhood joy captured in the scenes with uh the young the young boys and their girlfriends and stuff like i really like the way those scenes are filmed yeah i can see that yeah i mean i i yeah they're they're filmed well like i said it's it's not everything in it like um like i said i definitely saw things that i that i thought were good um but uh yeah i think it was just uh yeah i don't know just uneven or something or like yeah it was like a frustrating experience because there was like for every good thing there was like something that i was like sitting there like why why did why what like um but uh or just sitting there just like blankly staring at two people talking um but 
And then you, you 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 want me to fucking watch my dinner with Andre? Yeah. Right here. <laughs> uh, um what is it? A um a foolish consistency is the hop goblin little minds. That's what Emerson said. <clears throat> Fuck him too. All right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it is true. Fuck Emerson. Um, it's the only thing you'll ever hear me quote from Emerson ever. Um, I do not like Emerson that much at all. All right. So number four on your list is... Ni- <laughs> gone from Bertolucci to this. That's so funny. Um, 1988's Die Hard, directed by John McTiernan, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Alexander Godunov, uh, Bonnie Bedelia, and Reginald Vell Johnson, has a 94% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94% from audiences. I guess tell us a little bit about this movie um, and uh, why you put it on the list. It's Die Hard. I think that everybody knows <laughs> right. what Die Hard is. Um, it was probably kind of surprising for you to see on the list, considering how much of an in-joke it is for us that um, we always say that you always claim that I hate Die Hard. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll give you an admission. Out of all five of these movies, and I've watched all five of these movies in the past week and a half at this point, I had the most fun watching Die Hard out of any of them. Mm-hmm. Like, I genuinely enjoyed watching Die Hard more than I enjoyed watching any of them. Not, I, I think I still liked the next three movies better in terms of like realizing that they're just better movies. Mm-hmm. But man, did I have a good time watching Die Hard? So, yeah, basic premise um, John McClane is New York City cop, his wife, um, Holly Gennaro McClane, has accepted a high ranking executive position in um, the Nakatomi Corporation. Um, who knows what Nakatomi does, like real estate development, and they have a lot of money. Um, so on Christmas Eve, McLean is traveling to Los Angeles to sort of reconcile with his wife and his children and spend the holiday with them. Um, I guess fortunately, maybe in the grand scheme of things, the day that he chooses to come is the day of their Christmas party and the day that, um, uh, Hans Gruber and his gang of international terrorists or thieves have decided to take over the building and steal whatever. What what do they say? Six hundred million dollars or something like that in like oh. bears bears uh, bonds. Yeah, it's it's six hundred six hundred forty million. Um, yeah, in bear bonds. Yeah. Um. So I mean, Die Hard is one of the most iconic movies of the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Especially in terms of like um. The script and the action sequences, um, the yippee ki motherfuckers, and um, now I got a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I think <clears throat> from our childhoods and from just, you know, like the public consciousness in general, I think that people like immediately recognize and appreciate. Um, a lot of really great performances in this movie, um, highlighted most of all by Willis and um, Alan Rickman. Um, but also Bedelia is good in it. Bedelia, Bedelia, Bedelia is yeah. good in it. Um, Re- Reginald Van Johnson's good in it. Um, Dudenoff is the um psychotic like main yeah. henchman, you know, who's consistently trying to kill Bruce Willis because uh, uh McLean killed his brother. Yeah. Um, and even like smaller performances, like the guy that plays uh, what's his name, Alan, Alan Weiss or whatever the coked out like executive and 
Um, oh, is, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, the uh, it's a uh, Henry Hen, Harry Ellis. It is, it is Ellis, I think. Yeah, yeah, Ellis is is what he goes by. Yeah, like that guy, like Hart Bachner. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I know, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, that dude's amazing in that role. Amazing. He's the sleaziest motherfucker in the world. Like, I love that role. Yeah. Paul Gleason too is the. Uh huh. Yep. Um, I don't even know what you call it. Like dedicated but conceited, like condescending deputy chief of the LAPD. Yeah. Um can't think I mean, outside just, the box. Yeah. Like, uh yeah. It's really even less than a day. This is a story of like what, like six hours, maybe seven hours, something yeah, like something that. Yeah, something like, like that. Yeah. Cause it's not even what the sun's coming up right at the very end. Like it seems like it's cracking the sky. Yeah, it's it's so. it's basically the over the course of like one evening from yeah. sunset to sun up. Right. Um but yeah, just so tightly paced and well scripted and fun. Um there's a lot of tension to it and there's a lot of um like everything is resolved in a very satisfying way. Um I don't know how believable a lot of it I mean Come on, I guess it doesn't really matter how believable it is, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know how much. Like when I was a kid, I used to. I didn't love this movie in the way you love this movie, but I really liked Die Hard as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that, like, as a grown up, I can see some, some of that like '80s like gaps in logic that just tend to happen in '80s action movies, but definitely established willis as a major action star um the thing that kind of propelled him throughout like the rest of the later 80s and then into the 90s and 2000s as one of the highest grossing actors um and i think at the time this was like the most money that anyone had been paid or something it was like five million dollars i think really for this role which is um pretty crazy that that was the most right um but it created uh put alan rickman on the map and kind of is was sort of promoted like pushed him into you know like being a recognized star and um i don't know just it's a really fun really great movie i can't imagine there's anyone who has not seen die hard but i guess if you haven't seen die hard um although my kid apparently which is pretty crazy that he had never seen die hard before really yeah um that's crazy yeah i would have but he had seen it well you know how i feel about it usually so yeah it's really not that surprising I guess. Um, yeah, I've I used to fall asleep to this movie for at least a year out of my life. So I've seen the first 15 to 40 minutes of this movie um, hundreds of times, I think. Uh, I've watched this movie, I can't tell you how many times, like as a child, like uh, preteen and like early teen uh so yeah like i know this is one of those movies like i know absolutely by heart like pretty much like every line as it's getting ready to be said uh the thing that i think was most captivating for me isn't willis necessarily although willis is you know good in the role and i think believable kind of is like and one of the things i liked about this movie i think is that even though like you were talking about like the gaps in logic and how kind of unrealistic like a lot of it is they do try to have realism embedded in this where a lot of action movies in the 80s didn't 
like people would come out unscathed or they had one big cut on them or something. And it's like, this feels like a man that's just getting beaten down and worn oh, yeah. down throughout the movie. And the shoe thing is always something that I think is like one of the most brilliant, like little tiny plot points in an action movie is this guy's gone around with no goddamn shoes on. And then when uh Gruber, like, you know, has uh um uh good off like shoot out the the glass so that like it'll cut up his feet like absolutely like just such a small thing but so so damn good um and just the grossness of him had to pick the glass out of his feet in the bathroom later uh, it's it's it but gruber's the thing i think i think that's the thing that like has always made me come back to this movie is not only how good rickman is because he's a real damn actor but just how I think well written and unique at the time that Gruber was for an action movie, like because Gruber is um, almost like some element of a Green Gecko. Like he he is right. the he is the corporate he's the corporate thief, right? Like he's the gentleman. Like he he has all these things. He's the pol- he's the political thief. He's the politician. He like has all these like the on the outside like you know very congenial and polite and nice but he's ruthless and gross on the inside and manipulative and um but also at times not without feeling a real i think care or concern like the idea that he realizes he's in charge of the situation at uh at one point and when holly the fact that even holly Gennaro is getting talked about on this podcast like that name is um warms my heart but um like all the words you said in describing this movie like um like in terms of the building like the name of the corporation all that kind of stuff it's just so things are so ingrained in my brain um and he the fact that he realizes that okay yes these people need to go to the bathroom and realizes that he has as a leader has to take care of some of these issues in order to be just humane shows that there is like actually a human being underneath some of this. And now look, it's still manipulated because he needs to keep control and he can't have people like, you know, not being able to use the bathroom. And, you know, he knows he can give a little bit in terms of getting the woman, the pregnant woman, a couch in order to, you know, keep, you know, keep control and keep order. Um, you know, you give a little to get a lot. And won't take her to the couch, we'll bring the couch to her. Right. Is that an acceptable compromise? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good exchange. Yeah. And then the other brilliant uh Gruber scene is when he pretends now I can't remember this name, but it's like when he I think it's Rick. When he Clay. Pretends, no, Clay. it's um oh, fuck. Shit. John John Clay? is that it yeah, yeah. So it's, it's something it's like clay. that yeah or rick clay or something something like that yeah and maybe it's richard, richard clay and he says he goes yeah like goes by rick or something like that but um uh but yeah when he pretends to be somebody that works in the building and does the american accent um do you how quickly do you think mclean realizes he's full of shit immediately uh, immediately yeah do you think do you think it's like the he's already suspicious i know because why would he be, why would why would this person suddenly just pop up and like why would he be there so he's already suspicious do you think it's the accent that like sells it like immediately 
I think it's not only the accent, but I think that McLean recognizes. I mean, it's said like half a dozen times up to this point that um, these are not just criminals. These are like well-organized, um, well-funded, you know, like he's very complimentary of the professionalism and the preparedness that um, Ruber's, you know, team has. So for this, like, basically like wastrel, whatever, just what is, what is he? Rickman claiming is like he's a a salesman or something like to have escaped from these people when like I, I think it's almost like like hubris on the part of McLean in some ways because how difficult a time has he had like getting around these people and sneaking around them and you know he's a highly trained police officer that's like well armed <clears throat> and this dude just happened to like get away and make his way all the way upstairs like I think that it's it's some like pretty unbelievable to him so Right. Um, Although it's funny you asked that because I asked myself that question. I was trying to watch it this time because, like, I I agree. Like, I really love that scene. And um, I was trying to think, like, okay, like, at what point in what I'm watching right now is is there a tell in Willis's performance that lets you know, like, okay, this is the moment or whatever? And, like, mm -hmm. he really, he gives them, like, a raised eyebrow at one point when he says something. Mm -hmm. But he plays it up so well, I think, just to give him the chance to... I don't think he dismisses that out of hand, but I think he puts him in a situation where he's not going to, like, give him any advantage, and he wants to set him up so he can see, you know, yeah. like, the truth of the right. matter. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I love that sequence. My favorite Hans Gruber line is when Harry Ellis, come, Ellis comes into the room and... Um, is trying to force his way in, and uh, Gruber asks like one of his henchmen, like, "What does he want?" And Ellis like um, says, "It's not what I want; it's what I can give you." <laughs> Look, let's be straight, okay? It's obvious you're not some dug thumb up here to snatch a few purses, am I right? And Hans Gruber says, "You're very perceptive." <laughs> um, <laughs> kills me every single time because like Gruber has immediately identified this idiot and found this man wanting and just lets him dig his own grave from that point on um but like the way he delivers you're very perceptive it kills me um that and then of course like the very end um with the uh with his death like i think it's one of the more iconic villain deaths oh, ever yeah. as well like just because of that shot like you know from from like the overhead shot um of him falling um <clears throat> Uh, and even like the sh shit, like you know, uh, what is it? Now I'm forgetting the lines, but it's um, what did he say? This isn't John Wayne. Like you know, you're not going to ride off into the sunset. Is like talking about these. Hmm. He says you're not going to ride off with Gene Autry, and um, McLean says that's uh Roy Rogers, not or, right. Um, no, it's not Roy Rogers. Uh, what the other one? John no. Wayne? No, but it's the other. You're not going to write off with whatever. I don't know. I, I yeah. fucked it all up. But right. yeah. Yeah. Like that, that whole exchange, like where they bring back the cowboy bit, it's like. It's not like they don't bring back bits in action movies up to this point, but it's the. It's the most fun of those bits that they bring back to recall 
like during the climactic scene like it actually feels like more again more realistic as something that would be referenced as opposed to some dumb damn one-liner that you would get in a sly movie or a schwarzenegger movie or something like that um and then like the whole thing of like uh, what was it you said to me before uh yes yippee <laughs> like uh, oh my god it's so good um but yeah it's gruber gruber is the thing that like i think captivated me as a young person uh, just how good of a villain he is so let me ask you this question before we move on mm-hmm. does carl popping up at the end almost like a fucking um like horror movie you know serial killer kind of lessen gruber's death in some way and i understand that you're given reginald Vell johnson like the ability to sort of have his moment and yeah right like give some closure to that character story because you've kind of come to know him so well but at the same time it's like to your point like you know hans gruber falling off of the nakatomi building is one of the more like iconic villain deaths i think i mean maybe in like cinema ever but definitely like during this time period. And then you just have this like last moment that <clears throat> McLean's not even involved in. And yeah, well, de- it very is very much like, you know, Jason popping up after you think he's dead. Like, you know, um, um, it's that type of moment. And like you said, it gives, it gives Del Johnson's character, um, you know, his, his kind of moment to shine and redeem himself from, you know, the shooting of a child or whatever that's established earlier, which again, like the layering of all those things is so well done too. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, look, it's a Chekhov's gun. Right. But I mean, at the same time, it's just layered so well that you almost forget about some of those things. And it's like, you almost don't think of it coming um, like the way it's going to play out. But yeah. um, Does it lessen Gruber's death? I, I don't know. I think Gruber's death is so well filmed that I don't think it does for me. Um, it feels rushed, all of it at the end. I feel like after Gruber's death, everything feels rushed. Um, I know there's not a lot of story to tell left, but still it feels like let's just hit like all these notes real quick. Like, you know, let let's let her punch fucking atherton's asshole reporter like in the face like you know let's like you know let carl come back so he can get his you know his moment and his pop and then like the final pop of um uh uh argyle like (laughs) breaking his way out of the fucking parking garage and like coming and picking him up um it feels all very rushed i don't think it takes away because the way that you see gruber fall from that overhead shot and then it cuts to the view from the street because it's all in slow-mo and then just the quickness of seeing that body fall and then i think it's paul gleason has the line right is he's like which again i hope that that wasn't a hostage yeah dear god i hope that's not a hostage or something like that and it adds this moment of again realism to me that it's like here's a bunch of people on the street that have no damn idea still what's going on and what this guy's been through really when it comes down to it um yeah i don't know i don't think it ruins the ending but i get what you're saying yeah uh, yeah i don't even i i wouldn't or not ruin like i ruin just... like undercuts his death or whatever like i mean yeah i don't think it does for me it still has the same power i mean to me it's just such a natural like end point of that movie and i know you have to have the the denouement or whatever but like it's just i don't know yeah no i mean i think it's a i think it's a good point um uh 
the only thing I read in terms of criticism that I thought was really interesting is Ebert gives it two out of four stars. Hmm. Um, and he got really hooked into like, uh, some of the things that you kind of mentioned about how, like you see kind of like, um, you know, some flaws and stuff in like the storytelling and, um, or the logic and stuff, but he really focused in on the Paul Gleason character Hmm. and talked about how it was, um, this really unnecessary addition to the movie that was there just to be consistently wrong at every step. Um, so it propped up Willis being right at every step. Well, it's just, uh, I mean, th- this is a contemporaneous review of this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's just Ebert being wrong. I mean, like, I, not not wrong, but you spent the entire 80s with the trope of the the lieutenant or commander or captain or whatever the fuck who you know was getting in the way of like the loose cannon whatever and it's just i i think it's just there for that reason honestly like i I think that that's just something that was expected yeah he he says that it's like it's it's part of what he calls the idiot plot syndrome um and says that uh if the characters are at least as the characters have to be at least as intelligent as the people in your audience, um, or otherwise it just becomes nonsense. And I get what he's saying, but you have so many people, like, I don't think it's a, the idea that he's like, he's following the script. That's the whole point of this movie is that's what Gruber and them are relying on is for everybody to play their roles the way that they're designed to play them according to policy and procedure. And this right. guy is a schmuck who follows the policy and procedure to the letter of the law. It's really not meant to pump up McLean as much as it is to your point, like pump up Ruber and his team. Right. And like, and then to at that point, like make you realize how great McLean is, you know, whatever, like in the role that he's playing, but it's like, it shows just how prepared and efficient and effective, um, you know, the Gruber team was. Right. Let's yeah. um, let's let's come back to this point when we talk about the number one movie. I want to revisit. Yeah. That I criticism can... of okay. this character. So. Yep. That, that makes sense. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> um. All right. So number three on your list is 1950s Rashomon. It is directed by Akira Kurosawa. Stars Toshiro Mifune, uh, Machiko Ko. Masayuka Mori and Takashi Shimura, and it has a 98% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 93% from audiences. But tell us a little bit about this movie and why you have it on the list. You did a pretty good job. There's Japanese names there, buddy. This is pretty close. Um, I only fucked up um, uh, Machiko when I said it. Machiko Kyo. Masayuki Mori. It's actually just Ko. Just Ko? Yep. Mm. So, based on a short story by Ryunosuke Akutagawa, um, who was like, I guess, like an 18th century Japanese writer, um, it actually lends the term of the name of the movie, the Rashomon, um, to a whole style of movie telling, which we've already talked about with uh, like Mari Seka, um, wherein you have one story that's told from multiple perspectives um, of a group of people or a single investigator trying to get to the truth of a situation um in this case the truth is um 
the rape of a woman and the murder of a um ronin i guess he was a samurai um so it's told from the perspective of uh the bandit who's toshiro mifune who's accused of murdering the samurai um the wife who's a uh, mechi mechikoko um that basically she tells the story of how she was raped and how um her husband um like basically wouldn't kill her because her whatever her honor had been besmirched um and then the samurai story is told through a medium um and then the woodcutter story which is ultimately like what the um what the truth is and you said so again like I don't know if I don't know how many people have seen Rashomon. I I would feel like Rashomon's one of those movies that people that really like movies have seen, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Like it feels like something that I saw at a really early age. Um it's beautifully shot by Kurosawa. Um I love Kurosawa's black and white um films. I think there's certain elements of this movie, especially when they're at. So Rashomon is this gate, um, where the title comes from, where uh, the woodcutter, the priest, and or the monk, and um, whatever he is, the uh, not bandit, but kind of like scurrilous guy, are having this conversation where they find this abandoned baby, and I think that like the shots like around the gate, especially like the shots in nature, like when it's raining or just the general feel of it are like incredibly beautiful. Um, I love the way that Kurosawa like consistently subverts his own narrative through what he's showing you on the screen, through what someone's telling you, um, whatever from like their own voice or whatever. Um, I think that it like is probably the most important movie on this list. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of how influential it was, um, it's a pretty early performance from Mifune, uh, who would go on to become um, Kurosawa's like, I don't know, muse isn't the right word, but like his, the guy that like he could depend on like over and over throughout the course of his career. Um, and one of the few times that Mifune played like an out and out villain, um, I think there's a really, for the time period especially, I think it's a pretty interesting look at like the dynamic between men and women, especially from this time period in Japan, um, where she more or less, like, you know, these two, this samurai and this bandit who ostensibly are like these tough, hardened warriors and whatever, and just kind of the perspective that they're, we're sort of both under her sway and that we're kind of weak and cowardly where she was the one that was more or less in control of all the situation, the situation the whole time. And she sort of led to the situation like escalating. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's got some really good performances in it. It's a lot of, um, I don't, I don't know if common is the right word, but it's a lot of like Kurosawa's band of like repeat performers and they all do an excellent job in it. And, and I think that, I think that when you get to the end, it's the first time you watch Rashomon, I think it's pretty surprising to see what actually occurred like 
in the grove and i don't know if you necessarily even know 100 percent ever what the truth of the story is you just kind of get like the most objective truth of the story but even that at the end is called into question like you know you're still just looking at it he's still just looking at it with his own eyes and his own prejudices or whatever so yeah i love i I love rashomon rashomon's one of the movies that i saw early on in my life of watching like quote-unquote like art house movies so it was pretty influential to me yeah i um it's been a long time since i've seen this movie and i think like you said it's the most important movie on this list in terms of like what it i think breaks in terms of allowing to establish what they call the Rashomon effect now like you know in movies of like you know telling things from different points of view and stuff like that I mean there's plenty of movies out there that do this and television episodes and all this kind of stuff so um I think that idea um itself is it makes it the most important there's some really great stuff in this to me and there's some stuff that it's like it feels a little long sometimes to me this movie like some scenes are stretched out like a little bit too much to me but it's a minor complaint overall um it just feels like the movie feels long in terms of the pacing occasionally um but the stuff with um the uh the woman speaking to the camera that trying to think of how to describe this like um like through the it's like the medium i guess is what she is right like where like the story's told like um yeah that sequence is haunting (laughs) it is so well done in terms of just the way it's just like film in first person point of view perspective and the way the sound editing is done over top of it and the voice that's coming out of it like it is a haunting scene um all like that whole sequence to me it's my favorite part of the whole movie probably and like it really feels in some way like lynchian before lynch yeah like um and I'd be fat. It's one of those things I'd be fascinated as rewatching again and watching it that I would love to know if Lynch is inspired by th- like something like that, you know, because Lynch is, has is so fucking weird and like in his own head that like I can't imagine if he would talk about inspirations a lot. But um, but yeah, it, it really made me feel like that's just something you would see almost immediately, like you know, in a Lynch movie or like even some of Bergman's stuff at times. Um. Uh, so one one of the funny things about this movie, um, the Japanese did not like this movie very much. Interesting. Um, like the Japanese, like critical press was, I mean, it was like moderately well received because Kurosawa was already an established director in Japan at the time, but um, definitely not like considered a classic or anything upon its release. It was the audience at Khan and the American audience that sort of elevated this movie to like a lofty status um, where people like considered it like a masterpiece at the time of release um, and sort of caused the Japanese critical press to reevaluate their own um, whatever, I guess like estimation of the movie. 
Um, one of the things that Kurosawa does in this movie that's really impressive is his use of natural light. So, and we've talked about this when we talked about um, Ron, um, I think at length, just in terms of like the way that he uses like the light in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, in this movie, one of the things that gives that otherworldly quality that you're kind of describing to that scene is he would take mirrors and angle them from the sun to illuminate like the different parts to give it almost like a glowing mm-hmm. that really shows is like almost like an otherworldly glow mm. during the filming of um certain scenes and particularly that one, like all the stuff where they're in the um <clears throat> I don't know what you call it, like the courtyard or whatever. Uh, the stone garden or whatever they're wherever you know where the bandit is um tied up mm-hmm. the way that he filmed it used natural light in an almost unnatural way and that was sort of um pretty like hugely influential at the time so i think definitely if if lynch took anything like i'm sure that a lot of directors have taken things from right kurosawa in general but like specifically in the way that he filmed this movie yeah, I'd be curious yeah. how much Lynch likes, how much he's influenced by Japanese cinema in general, because there's a lot of um, a lot of very subtle. I don't know how to even describe it. Like the scare, the horror comes from the, almost like the banality of the thing, rather than like it being like a outwardly horrific thing, right? Um, in a lot of Japanese, um, cinema. And they use a lot of spiritualism and ghosts or whatever. I mean, that's a pretty standard part of like Japanese culture um, and folklore. And so you see that a lot, especially in this from like the 50s through the early 70s. Um, So if Lynch saw any of that stuff, and I'm sure that he did, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, I'm sure that he watched um, a lot of um, whatever you want to call it, like art house films. I'm sure that he did get a lot of. Well, right. I mean, he was in you know, art school. So, I mean, he would have been watching a lot of that stuff and everything, but, um, I'm sure, but yeah. Uh, no, that's interesting. Um, yeah, because it's like, again, it's like, I feel like the, some of the things I like about movies, I can't really do sometimes with foreign movies. Cause I don't know the culture in the country quite as much. Um, I know I've read that there's a lot of people that seem to link this movie. And even though the story, the story that's based on is much older, um link this movie to an allegory for um the defeat of japan in world war ii um in terms of like the kind of like the rashomon effect like the idea that truth is subjective you know and uh, you know uncertainty and all those kind of things um but i and i'd love to know more about that but because i don't know the specifics of what was going on in japanese culture at the time but i do i I remember reading that and i do find it interesting though that they're reaction you said was pretty poor in japan because all i read is just usually the contemporaneous american reviews of movies um is what i'm looking at most of the time so i don't really see a lot about um the countries they came out in um but it does that is interesting to me that if it wasn't received extremely well i wonder if it's because it was pushing buttons um potentially of i'm not sure uh they they just felt like it wasn't the best representation of japan to the world Mm. um i think Ozu was the person that was chosen. I mean, this Rashomon won what you would consider like the inaugural like foreign best foreign film um Oscar. Although it wasn't called that at the time. Um, but right, yeah, yeah, I saw it it's like yeah, it's like a it was like an honorary award, right? Like 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Like they had they didn't actually have that category yet. <clears throat> um Yeah. Um No, fascinating movie. Um and uh because what it's not long after this the seventh samurai comes out, right? Couple years, seven yeah. samurai sixty-five, I think. Yeah. Um or sixty-five, uh fifty-five, I think. Um it's funny because if you ask me to rank my favorite Kurosawa movies, I don't think that Rashomon makes the top five, but I definitely think that it's um it's probably it, it might be his most important work in terms of just its like influence and you know its reach. Uh mm-hmm. seven rise fifty four. Sorry, not fifty five. Okay. Yeah, listen to this. Here's here here's here's a run for you. So starting in 48, he does Drunken Angel, Stray Dog, Rashomon, The Idiot, Akiru, Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, Lower Depths, Hidden Fortress, Bad Sleep Well, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, High and Low, Dodeskaden. And that's yeah. from 48 to 1970. Yeah. So basically like some of the, the greatest like dramatic movies ever filmed by one guy in the span of like 22 years yeah i know we've done this exercise at the bar like a long time ago many many times um and and sometimes outside the bar i guess but uh, i've always been interested uh for many years ago about the idea of like the undisputed champion type thing of like you know we've done it with actors and stuff like that of talking about like you know who's the undisputed world champion for a certain number of years you know um so it's like you can you make an argument for Nicholson probably from like what seventy, just as an example, like what seventy three or something to seventy five, like even, he like probably even before that, maybe like sixty eight, sixty nine. Yeah, like but that he's like the you know like the undisputed world champion, like in terms of acting. I think it would be really interesting at some point to look at directors too, because um, and the, all the point I make is Kurosawa is definitely if not. He's definitely a world champion at some. He's an undisputed champion at some point, in terms of directing. I mean, that's the amazing thing, though, because you have Kurosawa, Bergman, and Fellini all directing like simultaneously, basically. And I'm not even the biggest Fellini fan, but I can certainly appreciate mm-hmm. his influence and his talent. And it's like to have those three dudes, right, were like simultaneously making movies is insane. And you know, um, Pasolini and Antonioni and Bertolucci and um Godard and there's all kinds of other like just John you know John Paul Melville uh Francois Truffaut like all these people like simultaneously were like creating movies who knew well you know is around the same time so it's just insane that you had all this stuff coming out like like and now we get you know I don't know some Kevin Hart and Rock like combo comedy for like the fifth year in a row Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's right. Like those three that you talk about, I mean, like how different, like, it's like having like, um, Ali Foreman and Frazier, like all at the same time, like, you know, like fighting. I mean, like, like that, that's what makes it interesting is because I think there would be years where it's like, you'd have to, again, like get down to the nitty gritty of those years. And it's like, it's, it's probably more likely that Kurosawa was like a, a multiple time champion. 
you yeah. know it's like where for he wins it for a year or two and then like you know has it taken away and that that's what makes that whole debate about all that stuff interesting to me is like you have to really get down into the nitty-gritty and see like you know is one film so powerful that allows them to take it for that year i mean and um <clears throat> you know but yeah Kurosawa you know when we talk about these directors and we talk about great directors a lot of times we talk about a lot of great directors that aren't undisputed champions to me Kurosawa is you know is an undisputed champion and I think we actually probably have two undisputed champions like I guess on this list if I kind of segue into the next movie um because I'm assuming at some point he takes that probably um for at least a year maybe yeah, two. maybe a couple years in yeah. the mid mid to late 60s right um so the second movie on your list is uh the directorial debut in 1962 of roman polanski knife in the water it stars leon nemchek jolanta yumeka and zygmunt molanovich it has a 100 percent from critics on around tomatoes and an 85 percent from audiences you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you have it on the list so this is kind of a more introspective and philosophical and less violent version of um, Dead Calm. Hmm. Um, uh, wealthy. Uh, did they ever establish what he is? Some some sort of intellectual. Um, and his wife are driving through the country to go sailing on their boat. And they almost run over this um, man that's kind of in the middle of the street. Um, the husband picks up the man as like a hitchhiker um ostensibly to like you know help give him a ride and then hey spend the day with us and have a good time but really just to kind of belittle the guy for being like poor and needing to walk and not having a car and sort of show off in front of his wife um so they go on this uh this cruise around a giant lake i guess maybe or something it's this whatever um husband's a colossal asshole um, he sort of torments the guy, but the guy's not necessarily like without flaw himself because he's also sort of a douchebag and um, is also trying to kind of show off in front of the woman. Um, eventually, the husband knocks the guy overboard, and you think for a little bit that the guy might have died because he say, keeps saying he can't swim, but really he was hiding under a buoy, and then he ends up sleeping with the wife. Um, because mostly because she's pissed off with the husband for you know being a douchebag um and the movie sort of ends without you knowing whether or not they were going to report because the husband still thinks that the guy is dead he doesn't believe his wife that you know she would have cheated on him with him because he can't i guess fathom that she would cheat on him with some commoner like this poor student whatever um so i don't really I didn't really do it justice explaining it, although I, I think I pretty much explained the whole movie. Um, but it is one of the most... I mean, I was... I, I know I said that I thought that Bertolucci's debut, you know, is impressive, and you can see a lot of, like, raw talent there. But it still feels like a debut. In, in Knife in the Water, like, you don't feel like you're watching the debut of a brand-new director. You feel like you're watching like the work of a person who's been doing this for years like it's it's confident it's ingeniously shot at points um the way that polanski frames and it takes place on like the smallest like environment like this you know this sailboat basically and the way that he uses 
framing and shot composition and just these three actors and their interactions with each other and with the boat itself to kind of demonstrate the ebb and flow of like the balance of power like emotional and um almost like sexual and whatever power that these people have with each other um and how it shifts between all three of them at different points just by the conversations they're having and the things that they're doing and how important it is at that point in time that you know somebody even like know how to to, like steer a sailboat basically Mm -hmm. um really highlighted by some brilliant performances by all three principals um i think in particular the the young man and and the wife um but the husband is just like just the biggest fucking dick and yes um really captures the sense of elitism that you know like the upper class would have had and still you know to some some extent have over people that are poor and working class and you can tell that the wife has like a strong amount of sympathy for the working class but is still not at all willing to give up her you know her upper class life basically so right i mean just for these last two movies are black and white and i know that like probably a lot of people aren't necessarily big fans of watching things in black and white um also both subtitled which is another thing that tends to turn people off i think but mm-hmm. like just the, the the shot composition and the beauty of this movie and the way that like even stuff like the encroaching clouds of like this impending storm that's sort of talked about a couple of times before it happens and the way that Polanski like captures the rain on the water and the rain on the boat. And I don't know. It's just, it's, it's such a brilliant movie and such an amazing um, debut for somebody who um, for a period of time, one of my favorite directors like ever. Sure. So I want to talk about something though. And I know that you probably want to talk about knife and water. Cause I know that you love this movie um, and I love this movie as well, but like, this is something that I think for a several years has been like one of your i don't know favorite movies but i know that you really appreciate it Mm -hmm. um i've been watching the hbo docuseries on woody allen and mia farrow okay and woody allen's um sexual abuse of his his adopted children and right just the consistent like systematic abuse that he was allowed to you know sure basically perpetrate because of his his status as a director and I've been reading a lot of articles too in conjunction because it's something that I've never been able to reconcile myself with over the past probably like five or six years. And there's a lot of Woody Allen movies that I love that I think mm-hmm. are really good. And it's difficult for me to ever talk about them or appreciate them because of who he is. And reading a lot of articles, especially from people, you know, in, in the media that are film critics or that were fans of Woody Allen, I think I finally come to peace with the fact that i can appreciate roman polanski's work and despise roman polanski as a creator like i don't think that roman polanski should i don't want to say be allowed to make movies because i hate the idea of like truly like canceling somebody but he needs to be held accountable for his actions and he shouldn't be allowed to like enjoy the freedom that he's been able to enjoy for the past 40 years until he is accountable to those actions. And you mean like win win, win Oscars? 
Right. And that, well, that's what I mean. And like yeah. live right. as a highly lauded and, you know, respected creator in the film world in okay. another country without having to like be taken to task for the terrible thing that he did. Right. And I feel the same way about Woody Allen. Like, I think I can still appreciate bananas and I don't know, um, like all of his early stuff that I really love. Annie Hall, Manhattan, you know, like mm-hmm. what's up Tiger Lily. I, I think I can still appreciate those as long as I know that like he needs to be held accountable for, you know, what, what well, he did. And well, I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think it's, you're just kind of finally coming around. You're, you're finally reconciling it to the point where you can, for these particular people separate the art and the artist. And I mean, I think Kevin Spacey, which we haven't had to do a movie with Kevin Spacey for a while. Um, and that's going to be hard. Like, cause I, I was worried that you were going to put American Beauty on a list. I remember at one point um, for like best of the year until I remembered that you hated that movie. Um, list. What's that? The, the, unless it's like lists of movies that critics love that Frank thinks are poop. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, at some point, there's going to be a damn list and Usual Suspects is going to make it, you know? And. Sure. It's like it's going to be hard for me to watch Kevin Spacey, I think, um, for the first time because I don't think I've seen anything with him in it. I don't think you don't think that we watched, um, let's fuck it, Ellie Confidential. Oh, uh, we did, yeah, yeah, after, yeah, I think it was after, yeah, you're right, yeah. Um, uh, we might have even talked about it briefly, but I don't think we talked about it long because I try to ignore it, um, because I don't think I've reconciled Spacey yet necessarily in my head, but I think I've reconciled these two and i was i liked a lot of woody allen movies but i i think you were more of a fan maybe of woody allen even than i was well, yeah um, dude i loved woody allen yeah. when i was in like my teens yeah and i think polanski i mean this is rat i've said this before in the podcast but it's like and this is me rationalizing look polanski needs to be punished for this um and if it can't the punishment can't come through with the u.s legal system then it needs to come from Certainly, the fucking academy shouldn't be handing them out awards twenty years ago. Um, you know, for uh, what I can't remember what that movie was. Um, what is it? The pianist. Pianist. That's it. Yeah. Um, I was thinking the piano. I said, no, that's not Harvey Keitel movie. Like, um, but I think I, I don't give him a pass at all. But it's like knowing the personal history of Roman Polanski in the, in the years leading up to that, like there's part of me that like, it's like when we watched Macbeth, right. And talked about it on the podcast, it's like, he goes and films that what within a year, like within a year, right? Pretty close. That's a man who's fucking deranged. Like, that guy's fucking insane. Like, if he goes and films that movie like that. Like, um, and that doesn't excuse any of it, but it's like, for some reason, I've always had an easier time reconciling Polanski than I have Woody Allen. Um, And I reconcile Allen before you, I think, because I wasn't as big of a fan as you were. Um, But Spacey, I loved as an actor, like, for most of my life. Even if his movies I didn't like, I liked him. And um, 
So it's really hard for me with Spacey, I know. Um, so it's going to take a while, I think. With Alan, I think you have to be able to recognize, too, when the troublesome aspects of some of his movies. Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to, like, the the spring-winter relationships that he tends to sure. highlight later in, in later films, where it's like... yeah that's definitely not comfortable and it's definitely a questionable yeah um and probably almost like a damning choice on his part to to do those things um yeah but i think that like i i I think you can't take away from because it's not just the director of a movie that makes a movie great right even though we tend to highlight the directors i mean you look at this movie i mean it's, it's performance and it's cinematography sure editing and there's all kinds and it's of like two, and it's performances from two people that aren't actors in this which is even more amazing like the the young kid and the wife aren't really well-known actors and he had never acted a single day in his life the kid in this movie like before this like that's a phenomenal because these are really good performances they really are um yeah you said everything i i would have to say about this movie really it's just like I can't remember. I I saw some critic when I was going through that stuff talking about how like Polanski uses like weapons, like the weapons in the movie are like things like words and glances and facial expressions and stuff like that. And it's like, this really is a battle that's taking place on the most intellectual level. And you're seeing it through these like brilliant shots of like, you know, a profile of somebody's face or a three quarter shot of somebody's face while the other two characters are talking in the background and that person's reacting to them. And it's like, it, it, it's so well done. Um, and I know like, uh, you know, a friend of the podcast or Ryan Wilmaker, like uh, he mentioned it, I think it were text that he didn't really care for this movie or whatever. Um, I think, and it's like, he's not somebody I think who necessarily likes those kind of scenes of like, you know, especially long extended, like movies almost of like those kind of extended battles like that. But I mean, it's like a stage play. That's, that's, that's exactly what it is. But it's like, even though it's a stage play, it's taking place on this boat. And it's like, I don't know if you read about this, but like, this was like a grueling fucking movie to film. Oh, where I bet. It was like 10 hour days, like filming, like every day for like a long time and um Polanski said they would have to wear safety harnesses because and and hang off the side of the boat in order to film like you know it's like can you imagine 10 hour days of wearing damn safety harnesses off and on all day hanging off the side of a boat to like film this movie um crazy and for his first like real motion picture like his first full length It's, uh, it's, it's it's incredibly impressive yes it is um because for years, like, you know, I still have your DVD of this, I think, your Criterion DVD, but um, for years, you um, you lent this to me because I would use the short he made right before this, or not long before this, a couple of years, for his, like, final student project or over two men in a wardrobe in my class. Um, and I used to use it for this, um, you know, exercise in, of analysis because you can read so many things that you want, whatever you wanted to read, you could read into it kind of, you know, like, what are the two men? Like, you know, and I think it's like very generally that they're nonconformists. And I, 
you know, there's stuff with like them looking at clouds and, you know, like stuff like that. And it's like, that's what you do out of clouds. You make what you want out of it. And I think the whole thing is kind of this like joke in a lot of ways by on Plansky's part, but the themes that show up in it, um, you know, uh, beyond that of like um, paranoia and violence and, um, you know, uh, deceit and claustrophobia and um you know humiliation like uh all those things are indicative of his work throughout the rest of his career and you can see a lot of that in here in terms of the claustrophobia um of the whole thing the way that you know uh people are deceitful how that you know like violence can be used you know because everything's building up towards a violent act here um Right, and never. Well, I mean, I guess it comes, but kind of. You're right. Yeah, it doesn't. It, right, but it's like it's all building towards that. Um, and yeah, it, it's a it's a fascinating movie because we haven't even, and, and I I don't want to, but it's like we haven't even talked about the sexual politics of this movie. It's like there there's so much depth of this movie. I think of like what's going on here about like how this guy doesn't believe her the choice itself to and and you took kind of like more of a um i think a you know political take on the characters and stuff like that but i think there's like some base human nature type stuff that you could you know talk about here as well in terms of her decision to go ahead and you know copulate with um with this young man and um you know and then his decision not to believe her uh don't don't you think that the reason for that is that he basically just calls her a whore like he already is he's already basically said that this is what she would be doing anyway if she wasn't married to him for his money Mm -hmm. and then just kind of like leaves and so there's almost no repercussion at that point to actually doing it like once you've been branded that thing like why not just embrace sure I mean, that, that, I think that's a that's a very fine reading of it. Yeah, I mean, I think there could be multiple things going on, but yeah, I think there's there's no coming back from that. Like, um, well, we're already talking about problematic people, but I, I remember Jordan Peterson one time hearing him say that like the worst thing you can ever do in an argument with a significant other is um, is sit there and say that you know you you're wrong you've always been wrong because it's there's nowhere to go from that point like you know it's like you're it's there there's no way to allow the person any comeback at that point and it's like yeah exactly what you're saying it's like you know you're a whore and you would have been a whore if it hadn't been for me there's no coming back from that and um so yeah that makes sense um psychologically that if that would do it his ability his inability to believe her um or at least consciously to kind of like accept that it's the truth um says a lot about men too i think um you know and it's like i could sit here and probably but i haven't done the thought exercise yet but it's like there there's something there with othello um <clears throat> like if you really start thinking about like the idea of like um the epistemology and like the knowing and not knowing and all those kind of things um uh that's really interesting i think to deal with and so it's like the last 15 minutes are where pretty much all the major interesting stuff is in terms of the philosophy i think 
um, overall, maybe like the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes or something like that. But it's like the filmmaking in between of the tension getting to that point is like the meat of the movie. And it's brilliantly done um, of connecting those like, you know, kind of stray philosophical thoughts that you could have about it. And I, I love this movie. Yeah, it's really good. Funny that um, this is one of the last Polanski movies that I saw hmm. from his whole filmography. Like, yeah, I, I, yeah. This and this and Cul de Sac, I would say. I've never seen Cul de Sac. Still, you wouldn't. You would enjoy Cul de Sac. Would I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I could tell you, like, oh. Although I think it's on. Um, it might be on Criterion Channel. So. I've never seen this movie called, uh, I guess the translation is The World's Most Beautiful Swindlers. Um, What's the name of the movie? Les, Les Plus Belles, I don't know, es, Escro Cares de Mund. Um, I have no idea what that Pretty is. Pretty crazy title. Yeah. Translates in The World's Most Beautiful Swindlers, Swindlers apparently. Uh, I've seen that. I never seen what. I I don't know what that is. Um, never seen what. Never seen. I've seen bitter moon. Death in the Maiden's another one that could have made this list. Seen it. Except I hate Death in the Maiden. Maiden. That's it. You're always lying to me. See, that's, oh, that's I'm, the, sorry, that's I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. That's the truth. That's the truth. You just told me the truth. That's what happened. <laughs> I, I was thinking of something else. Um, uh-huh. Fine with that. <laughs> uh-huh. I was thinking of Bitter Moon for some reason. I was only half paying attention. No, it's because I said Bitter Moon. <clears throat> um, um, yeah, but no, I, I think I've seen most of those. Yeah, almost all. I of like them. Death in the Maiden just fine. Yeah. All right, you ready to move on? Number one. All right, so number one on your list is 1975's Dog Day Afternoon, directed by Sidney Lumet. It stars Al Pacino, John Cazal, Charles Durning, Christopher, Chris, not Christopher, Chris Sarandon. Um, it has a 96% from critics and a 90% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie? And Is it uh, really? Lumet. I've said Lumet my whole entire life. Me too. Yeah, Lumet. Lumet, yep. I don't I don't like that. Um so based on a real life incident, I guess that happened in the um early 70s, um follows uh Pacino and um um fuck, I I've already forgotten this actor's name. Uh Cazale, John Cazale, mm-hmm. um, who are pretty inept bank robbers. Um they take hostages in this small um like mid midtown manhattan bank um immediately lose control of the situation in a lot of ways and are like found by the police and so then it um precipitates this standoff that lasts for the entirety of a hot summer's day basically um between mostly Pacino, who's kind of the mastermind of the whole thing, um, and Charles Durning, who's the um, 
uh, detective that's in charge of kind of negotiating the release of the hostages. Um, throughout the course of the movie, um, Pacino kind of becomes a, like a folk hero almost to the people gathered outside and the people watching on TV um, until they find out that he's a homosexual and then he becomes like sort of reviled by a portion of those people. Um, I think it's really interesting that they, they're that open with like the, the dynamic of people like viewing him as like a hero at first and then like sort of turning on him when they find out that he's a homosexual, Mm -hmm. but then the homosexual community coming out and like rallying behind him. Um, You find out his reason for robbing the bank is to um, pay for a sex reassignment operation for his um, lover, Leon, um, who he has basically emotionally abused um, to the point where he had to go into an asylum um, and who's like afraid now of um, Sonny, the uh, Pacino character. Um, Some really brilliant performances by a number of actors who um, would go on throughout the late seventies and eighties to become like pretty prominent. So, you know, Pacino, obviously um, Chris Sarandon in a really great role. Um, Charles Durning um, in a fantastic role, like a very human um, look at somebody who kind of is playing a role that would become a joke later. Um, so this is what I wanted to talk about at the end of Die Hard in comparing him um, with the lieutenant because they're in, in essence playing the same character as the guy that has to be in charge of a situation and um, doesn't necessarily have the support of everyone that's around him, but is still trying to just make the best decision based on what he thinks is the right outcome, which is getting as many of the hostages saved as possible. And it's 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 interesting that Durning is played as a very sympathetic and mm-hmm. yeah. well-meaning and professional character. Um, and basically when the FBI comes into their hostage situation is telling them this is how it's going to be. Whereas in the opposite with Die Hard, when the FBI comes in, they just sort of railroad um, the assistant, whatever chief out. And mm-hmm. it's just funny that, you know, however many years separation is 15 years, whatever. Um, 13 years uh, the, the the perception of like the police has changed so much where they go from being and it's not like the Dog Day Afternoon is an overly sympathetic view of the police because you know there's um, one of the more famous scenes is Pacino you know chanting Attica right um, in sure. the face of what he perceives as like imminent police brutality um or his murder at the hands of the police, um, which eventually comes true for his partner. Um, you know, he does get murdered. Just the way that they build, like, your human concern for Sonny and Sal, and also the other people, the tellers and the bank manager yeah. and everybody that's that's inside that bank and just... The reflection of like because at first i always i always find this to be a funny like juxtaposition is um they have this talking heads like psychiatrist on television early on where he's talking about um they don't call it stockholm syndrome because i guess maybe that didn't exist then Mm -hmm. um but they call it like some similar like title um of 
the building of a relationship between like kidnapper and kidnappee. Um, and you don't see that if, when he's talking about it. It feels like a um that's the word I'm looking for. It just feels like like a like a stuffed shirt. Like the guy is just kind of whatever. Like pushing out this like psycho babble almost. But then right. like when you actually see it happen and witness them like get close to each other and you know Maria giving her rosary to um Sal because it's his first flight and <clears throat> you know she doesn't want him to she wants him to have good luck and like just this feeling that they have that even though like you know it's not going to end well like it still feels up to the last minute like maybe they'll get away with it and you sort of kind of want them to um it's just pretty pretty brilliant um per- performances all around and just a really fantastically filmed movie really um in the same way that i feel that um and we talked about this when we talked about do the right thing like just the way that it makes you feel like the heat of the situation and mm-hmm. you know the claustrophobia and like the closeness of all those people like being locked in this bank together and on this hot summer's day and it's just um it's it's a pretty brilliant movie yeah. it's out of all five of these movies this is my favorite movie which is why it comes in at number one yeah yeah no this was really i mean despite what happens you know with these characters at the end i mean this this was a really uh great movie to watch again for the first time in a long time and i was taken in like immediately i think i texted maybe you and easter i think it was like in the first hour of just like how like it just like grabs you and pulls you in and like doesn't let go the pacing of that first hour is uh, so well done like and just in terms of the just um one thing after another and just like you know just how it so quickly spins out of control and just builds in that first like 30 minutes um to the point of the attica scene pretty much but yeah i um really enjoyed this movie i uh the the main things that really despite is not about the filmmaking so much that like kind of came to mind as watching this is one is we haven't really talked about him much because he's only appeared in one movie that uh, and he only appears like in five movies total in his career but um John Cazal is a guy that was lost way too soon yeah. like um because basically he has this the two Godfather first two Godfather movies is Fredo the conversation and uh, the deer hunter. And that's all he has to his credit, which I, we both feel similarly, I think about the deer hunter, but um, despite that, like that's a hell of a five movies um, to have your, have your damn credit and guy that probably would have been, you know, one of the greatest like actors of the generation. Had he not like passed away suddenly from lung cancer um, out of nowhere uh, so yeah, that was. It's, we don't really. We're not. We only have a couple chances probably left to like to ever talk about him. But, um, and this is probably you know the after Fredo is probably to me like a second best performance in a movie. Um, you know the conversation is fine, but it's not really like a necessarily a really starring role or anything like that, or even like a large supporting actor role. I think. But um, but damn, if this guy for, you know best supporting actor he's a he's an undisputed champion for a few years um <laughs> this so. is my favorite performance of his too. oh really that's oh, interesting yeah, yeah. <clears throat> just the 
so I, I think it's incredibly interesting that so this movie is made in 75. So you're kind of like right on the cusp of hitting the point where you're not even that close. Like being gay isn't necessarily a weakness or a joke in a movie. And for a movie to take it so seriously and treat it appropriately and delicately without mm-hmm. being like um I don't know, like precious about it or whatever. It's 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 pretty amazing that they're so upfront with the fact that, you know, number one, his wife is a transgender, like pre-op transgender man. Mm-hmm. Um and that they're so like open about that. You know, I mean I just think that it's um I think it's pretty incredible that it, to treat that subject matter with such like deference and what you would expect to see like today um talking about it as opposed to like you know where it would have been a joke mm-hmm. in most movies in like the mid 70s like i found it to be um and i i never really thought of it before i guess maybe cuz i don't know i don't know maybe it's just the past couple of years of like brought that much more to the forefront in terms of like how we think about how people are portrayed and how certain things are shown in movies. And um, I don't know. I just, I I find it really refreshing to see, you know, them treating like his homosexuality is not a, a punchline or whatever. Yeah, no, I I agree. um, Yeah. It's very, very well handled. Yeah. He, uh, he hated this movie. Like they, they sued the production company, but they might have actually sued Sidney Lumet um, in regards to uh, the portrayal of the wife and mm. how he was portrayed and just in general, the fact that they felt that it didn't stick true to the situation. And mm. the response was, you know, they took a true story and they told it with like an actual narrative. Um, Cause I guess some of the stuff isn't exact with what actually happened in the, the real situation. Mm-hmm. But they also make him an incredibly sympathetic character, and apparently he was crazy in real life. So I don't know. So the other thing that I had to mention, and it's not about this movie. Again, it's just kind of just related. And then I do have one last thing to bring up about this movie is this is only five years before I was born, and this is like what, like two years after you were born. Before I I was born, you dick. No, yeah, yeah, before you were born. Sorry, but I. I'm just thinking about like the way the city looks and the signs, the fonts, the coloring, all that kind of stuff. I watch these movies from the seventies and see that kind of stuff. Cause I think this is the, the way it shows New York is fantastic. Like you get such a sense of where this is taking place at. Um, <clears throat> I don't remember it looking like that when I was a kid, like the world. Yeah. Like it feels oh, like the I mean, 70s are a completely different time. Like like that mid 70s, it's a totally different world by like 84 when I start remembering things. Well, like, you're also right on the precipice at this point this movie's made of the um like the huge influx of like drug crime in the city. So Yeah. Neighborhoods are still neighborhoods. It's not like you don't have the basically like the war zone that it becomes in a lot of ways that was, you know, relegated at this point. Like, I hate to say it like this, but Mm -hmm. to Harlem in a lot of ways, like, and you see that in 
not to say these are like actual representations of life, but you see it in um like across 110th Street is a prime example of sure. Um, but also like look at something like Doctor No. Was Doctor No? No. Um, what was the one that we watched that you hate? The voodoo one. Um, Live and Let Die. Yeah. Like the way that Live and the way that that city is portrayed in that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some parts of it were still like whatever, like communities, and some had become right almost like war zones and i yeah think I, I just yeah i and even that i just mean like the even the signage i don't remember you would think i would remember signs looking the way that they do in that movie nine years later when i start remembering these things because there would still be remnants of it like left over from that time period but it's like i don't remember the signs looking that way um it's just very odd it's like because it, it feels like sometimes like in the 80s I don't know, like new fonts were discovered and like coloring became better. And I'm assuming that maybe relates to PC power increasing, maybe like during that time, like, a, like or not PCs, but like just like computing power, like increasing sure. maybe during that times. Um, well, you're using computers for your graphic design more than you are. And and printing technology and whatever right. more than you're using, yeah. like someone like hand lettering a sign. Oh, sure. It's like the rise of Xerox and like, you know, all these different like, you know, companies and stuff like that. And it's like, it's just is another one of those like little reminders of how much the world has changed. I mean, and, and the aesthetic, and if you're talking nine years, the aesthetic changes, it's night and day. Like the font, like you brought this up already, like the fonts are completely different. Mm-hmm. The use of color, like, you know, you get more like pastels and whatever in the 80s and right completely different like aesthetic yeah. entirely yeah but it's like i just don't remember that old aesthetic like i said like you think you would because there would be remnants of it but i just don't remember it because it must have just been superseded in my mind by the current trends or something i i'm surprised you don't remember it in the convenience stores like that's where you used to see it around here is it yeah like the mom and pops and right the people that would like recycle signage forever yeah um but in terms of like major whatever stores and whatever it was pretty modern by the time we were yeah yeah i remember some of it like i remember are you were you around here early enough to remember nickels market um where pats is now in elkton yeah yep i remember nickels um yeah like i can remember the signage on that store and like how it looked but it still feels i don't know it still doesn't feel 70s to me (laughs) The other thing too is that we had a lot of stuff that felt that was like from the fifties and sixties. Like think about like Newberries or um No, yeah, Newberry's a good example of the color. American Home and Hardware, like mm-hmm. before they redesigned. I mean, a lot of that stuff yeah. was Elkton supply. Yeah, like yeah. remnants <laughs> of ten years prior to when this movie was out. Like we didn't really live in an area that had been modernized. Yeah. And then the yeah. other stuff we had that was newer was shit that was like like Roy Rogers and fucking, um, I don't know, Sizzler, you know what I mean? Stuff sure. like that, like yeah. um, Bonanza. Yeah, we did have like a Bonanza. Mm-hmm. It was, so. uh, yeah, Bonanza was, Bonanza was o- owned by um, a bunch of uh, uh, attorneys who were um, uh, drug attorneys. Like, Well, let me tell you something. Their fucking beefaroni was amazing. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the last thing I wanted to bring up here is because Vanity Fair, this article popped up in my feed, um, probably because I had looked up and was researching a little bit about uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, and it's only a couple weeks old. So, um, so it popped up and it was talking about the 76 Oscar race where this was nominated, um, Dog Day. And the title of the article was something, what is it here? Uh, was 1976 the best, uh, best picture race ever? And so the nominees this year uh, are Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Nashville. And it's a really interesting article just about like the history of this race in terms of what was going on kind of in Hollywood at the time and in society. And basically it came down to like almost like a process of elimination because they all had things that were like holding them back. Um, Jaws notably is that it wasn't film. It was, you know, a summer action movie, basically. Um, Nashville had Altman, who was never necessarily a uh, very kind to people in the Academy. Sure. He was considered an outsider. Uh, Kubrick had already been nominated three times, and while he was due for a win, uh, people in the Academy felt his films were too, quote, cold and clinical, unquote. Um, Dog in the Afternoon was a hit with the critics, um, you know, uh, like I said earlier, with like that Ron Tomatoes score, 96%, but um, and if you go to top critics, it's like, I think 100, but uh, a lot of the movie goers were, um, you know, uh, what does it say? We're, we're put off by the third rail gay subplot um, in the movie is, is how they call it. Um, Lumet actually says that he remembers um, an audience member uh, during a screening calling Pacino a fag, um, like in the theater. Um, so that was a problem with audiences at the time. And um, uh Cuckoo's Nest apparently had been shopped around to every studio before it finally got made. So it kind of had that stain to it. Um, but ultimately that ended up being the least controversial route. And they just ended up going with one who flew the Cuckoo's Nest as best picture. Uh, but it is a really interesting like little like subplot about this movie is that personally, I think Barry Lyndon's the best because we didn't do this year when we did we do this year when we recast the Oscar? Yeah, we did, because this is, I think, was where we first started a little bit talking about Dog Day Afternoon, maybe when we did the reevaluating the Oscars episode. Um, that was the late 70s, the second half of the 70s, I think we did. Um, Barry Lynn is the best picture of this year, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, this this is, the then, sec- this is the second best, right? Yeah, Barry Lynn and Dog Day, um, probably Nashville, and then Cuckoo's Nest, and then Jaws, I would say. Mm-hmm. If we're just talking about yeah. what 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 year is this? Seventy five. Uh, this is seventy. Let's see. So this is the forty eighth Oscar. So the seventy six Oscars, but it's seventy five films. Yeah, was released in that year that maybe would have been worthy. Uh, damn, there's a lot of shit. Day of the Locust was that year. I know. Day of the Locust, great movie. I, I would put Day of the Locust on there above Jaws, probably. Amacord, I mean, in terms of foreign stuff, Amacord's that year. Um, yeah, but this is when you couldn't have a foreign film nominated for Best Picture. Gotcha. 
it was just that's why the best picture um <clears throat> or the best foreign film category exists i think i don't know when that would have changed though yeah i mean those are probably like if if you put day of the locust in there that's that's probably a good top five list there's a lot of stuff that i like a lot but it's not necessarily like best film and yeah, the 70s are such a weird weird decade i love the 70s and there's a lot of really good foreign stuff that's the problem right john john dealman like i can never remember how you say this john dealman 23 qua de Camer, 1080 bruzel <clears throat> that's a good movie even though it sounds ridiculous <laughs> jacob the liar is that year um Listomania is is actually like pretty underrated, I think, but I don't think it could ever be nominated for um a best picture. That's a Roger Daltrey musical directed by Ken Russell. How do you feel about shampoo? Is shampoo seventy five? I thought shampoo yeah. was in the eighties. No, it's seventy five. Really? I like shampoo just fine. Magic flute is seventy five. Mandingo is 75. Jesus Christ. I can't imagine like how that movie, I don't know. I guess nobody talks about it, so it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah, I mean that's that that those those are probably the best five movies of that year. In terms of like English language releases. Mm-hmm. Rocky Horror, though. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. Rooster Cogburn was that year. That's interesting. Yeah. Salo is that year? I I need to watch that at some point. I think is that on Criteria now? Mm-hmm, maybe. I think it is. I'll never watch it again. So yeah. enjoy. I don't know. That's not true. I probably would watch it again. But man, is it a hard movie to watch? Yeah, that's what you've always told me. We could do a first watch of it, but I don't know if we'll be able to get through it. I mean, I can get through most things, but um, it's a tough movie, buddy. I'm telling you. Yeah, I can. I mean, I understand. I've gone through tough stuff before. Like, I mean, I can dissociate to some degree. I think the toughest movie I've ever watched is. I don't know. This is why you make the list, not me. Your answer is going to be Sallow when you eventually watch Sallow. Okay. I'd, I'd really have to think about it. Um, I mean, there's, there, there's. See, the problem with Salo is that you have shit like a Serbian movie that are just like grotesque for grotesque sake, right? And are really like almost impossible to watch and really, really uncomfortable. But yeah. the thing with Salo is Salo is such a fucking well-made and important movie that it's like, I don't know, it makes it e- even more difficult to watch somehow. Because of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to look. I'll have to, I'll have to watch them get through it. But all right, that was a good list this week. I, I really enjoyed. Like, I thought all these movies were interesting, but most of them I enjoyed watching again a lot. Um, 
next week's list is really good too i think so it is um i only have one movie left um and i've uh there's two of them i've never seen before i absolutely i love both of them uh, one i really loved i didn't for some reason did not think i would care but um i really did um like it a lot but yeah i have one movie which i've seen part of year i've never actually never seen the whole thing i just saw like half of it on probably like showtime or hbo or something a long time ago but i think we've i think we figured out it was cinemax last night gotcha because i'm pretty sure it was on cinemax like constantly in the okay. 90s right. um but yeah um no that's that's a really good list and then um i'm actually behind because i've only watched i think like one movie on your 92 par list so far maybe two i've only watched one of them too i think so yeah um but yeah um and then uh jesus we're gonna be in april after that already oh it's pretty crazy it is um which uh the first episode of april is um i don't think we've talked about that yet maybe is we will be doing with uh uh, our friend jason heaster will be returning to cover uh, the Indiana Jones, uh, what is it called? Not a trilogy. Um, Quadrilogy? Sure. Um, that's what I'm, I'm going to name it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, because I guess we have to fucking talk about Kingdom of Crystal Skull, too, and just what a fucking travesty that whole franchise ends up turning into. So excited. <laughs> hey, there's there's three good movies um, to talk about, though. And then that that bullshit um i'm i'm honestly excited to watch kingdom of the crystal skull though because i have not watched it since we saw it in the theaters um and now that i think i've gotten some distance um i think i might be able to like not get as angry um i think and i might just be able to like laugh at how dumb some of the shit is as opposed to get angry about it but we'll see i mean we'll see but yeah, we got that, and then the top five movies filmed in Maryland, and um, and then the '93 list uh, for um, for April. So, and then we have the month of May, which is uh, the what I'm calling the month of Chris, and that is uh, a fresh five, uh, the next top five crime films of the '70s, and then the uh, top five movies that Chris loves and Frank is indifferent to, and then the '94. That's a packed month. That's a lot of movies to watch for. May, but um and then the 94 list so horror list so um so yeah that's what we have upcoming and um other than that uh thank you for listening tonight and have a good week have a good night